What's up, everybody, and welcome back to Scripture First, the podcast that explores how the Lutheran lectionary is working in your life. I'm your host, Mason Van Essen. This week, we welcome Luther House of Studies Chair of Lutheran Theology, Dr. Stephen Paulson, back to the podcast to talk about this week's lectionary text, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Before we dive into this week's conversation, I want to tell you about the three-day conference Luther House of Study is hosting in January. It's called Proclamation on the Plains, and it's three days filled with learning and fellowship, celebrating the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's three most theologically determinative treaties. Proclamation on the Plains will take place January 5th through the 7th, with both afternoon and evening sessions, where you'll hear the professors you hear on this podcast lead discussions on Martin Luther's treaties. The conference is free to attend and also available via live stream, thanks to the Lutheran Leadership Foundation. To see this full schedule of sessions, visit Luther House of Studies' Facebook page. And if you're interested in attending Proclamation on the Plains, please email Sarah Stenson to register. Her email is sstenson at augie.edu. That's S-S-T-E-N-S-O-N at A-U-G-I-E dot E-D-U. Again, that's sstenson at augie.edu. There's only two weeks left before this awesome event. Register now or email Sarah for more information on the live stream. There was quite a bit to unpack in this week's lectionary text. You'll hear Dr. Paulson explain the significance of dreams, as well as what he calls the saddest event in scripture, Herod slaughtering innocent children. We also talked about what Dr. Paulson explained as the two works of the law and the three givings of the gospel. Essentially, it's God's sword of the law going up against God's promise in the mercy of his son and what Dr. Paulson describes as a cosmic battle that ends in the son winning. You'll want to listen to the full episode because you'll want to hear Dr. Paulson explain what scripture is getting at when it says God's in heat like a South Dakota cow. But first, here's Matthew chapter 2 verses 13 through 23. Now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem, who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. 
and after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. And now, on to this week's conversation. right when you when you talked about in relation to last week um this one is about joseph again can you where where is the legitimacy in dreams because this has happened two weeks in a row and why are why are we to believe that dreams have hold any legitimacy for us well, uh, Kiri, you are too far beyond uh, the generation that I grew up in, which was under Freud, uh, which taught us all that the main way that you can identify what's going on in the conscience is through dreams. So this is not a faraway, uh, strange old thing. Uh, it is, uh, by, by certain uh, scientific um, instruments, uh, the best way to get at what is actually in the conscience. But that aside... What we've got in both of these stories with Joseph is that, um, that uh, Joseph is going to be talked to in a sermon in the same way that Joseph was, who is one of the key parts of the lineage of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And Joseph uh, now is spoken to this way in a dream, and he's also an interpreter of the dream. So what you're getting with all of these stories of Joseph is that he's following in the line of Joseph. And Joseph, you remember, ends up, he didn't start this way, but he ends up being the greatest single absolver of all time. He pulled off the greatest absolution of all time. You have to remember this when he turned or when he figured out how to forgive his brothers for what they had done to him and what he had done for uh, for Benjamin. So uh, all of those things are at play here with Joseph then you probably should notice one other thing. It is very difficult to get a male to go and listen to a sermon from anybody. So you have to usually get him asleep, uh, and the the angel has to come down and say, there's no way I'm going to get him out to the synagogue. This guy is going nowhere fast. Uh, He's a typical male, and so uh, he has to come in the middle of his dreams. I, I, I can imagine Mary just being like, a, another dream again? Uh, <laughs> another dream. <laughs> Every morning crazy. they get up and have coffee and Joseph says, okay, you won't believe what I got in this particular one, all right? That's, that is the way it normally goes. Yeah, so, but this is Joseph in the second, uh, you know, the second rendition. And remember, in the first uh, one, the, the, uh, the, the, the uh, fourth advent, uh, Joseph is uh, putting the baby Jesus, his own son now, under the law. And now you want to notice what happens when a person is put under the law. And remember I said uh, there were two things that happen when a person is under the law. The first one is that they will be protected. Mm -hmm. The second one is that they will be attacked by the law. 
So you tell me why th this uh, ends up being important. When, when you come to preach this, you should notice in this text that you've got two laws, uh, or two uses of the law, if you like to put it this way, and you've got three Gospels. And isn't it going to be great that the Gospel is going to outdo the law here? But you have to start with the matter of the law. Mm -hmm. So if the law is protecting, what's the first word that you find here that, uh, that applies to Joseph for how he's going to protect his son Jesus by using the law? Putting, the, putting Jesus under the umbrella of the law, the, 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 the safety net of the law. Go to, go to Egypt. Okay, Get out of here. Go to Egypt. Flee. That's the key word. Mm -hmm. So uh, the key word for the law is yeah. get out of here. Flee. And fleeing is the way to protect yourself using the law. Now, fleeing um, is good because it averts an immediate evil. Mm -hmm. But the law cannot protect and preserve from all harm and all evil. So now you have the second matter of the law. And uh, jo uh, Joseph is fleeing to Egypt with Jesus to protect him. He's doing what a dad has to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and they are now running away from the evil that, uh, that could get to Jesus even though he is God's own son. It can even get to him now. And then the next step is to watch the most horrible thing. There are many horrible stories in Scripture. I think this is the most horrible of them all, the slaughtering of little babies in Bethlehem uh, um, instead of Christ. Uh, that is, trying to get to Christ and not quite uh, being able to get there. This is the second uh, use of the law that's underway here. Mm -hmm. um, why does Herod want to kill baby Jesus? Now you tell me because Herod is, is a it, product of the law and he yes. is a user of the law. So what, what does he have? King. He's a king. So is it literally, he literally only wants to kill Jesus because other people have said and proclaimed that the son of that the 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 son of the Lord has been born, the king of the people, the king of the Jews has been born. That if you is are the king, only reason. If you are king, you didn't make yourself king. You understand that you were placed yeah. in the role of a king by God. Mm -hmm. Then what do you do if somebody is trying to stage a coup and overtake you? What if you find that suddenly in your nation, people are planning a coup and a takeover? What do you do? You kill I mean, them all. Yeah, you, you try. And well, you protect them. the office, not mm -hmm. just because you're selfish and mean, but because you are the source of the law. And if the coup is successful, then the unlawfulness will break out in the uh, whole community. In comes Jesus. This follows the story of the three wise men, you remember, mm -hmm. who are the ones who broke open the story. They cracked open the, the, the uh, key for w where this Jesus was supposed to be, uh, where, you know, uh, who he must be, and so on. And, uh, and now uh, Herod is afraid that this one who is called Messiah, which means a king, is now going to unthrone him. And, and as I said, you can say that this is 
mean and selfish or short-sighted or self-protective or whatever it might be. But all he's doing is exercising the law to protect the law, to keep the law uh, operating and going. And he will use the primary means that, are, that is at the law's disposal. Uh, and uh, that primary means is the means of the sword or violence. A government operates through, through the use of, the, the sole use, finally, of the sword and force. And that's what makes a government a government. Mm -hmm. Who has the control of the police and the army? And he is now going to use it to protect the, uh, the kingdom. Mm. Is there significance behind the fact that the murder of small children occurred twice in the Bible? Well, yes. I'm now, are you referring to the, uh, to the lamentation of Rama and so on in verse 18, the reference to uh, Jeremiah 31? Is that what you're thinking of? Well, I was thinking mm. of Jesus and Moses. Right? Or, yeah. Say more, just so I understand exactly so, what you're pointing out. So the um they they killed the they killed the baby the children under two years old here Herod did mm -hmm. um but then the same thing happened with Moses in Egypt I th I believe um and when he was a child they killed children I don't remember what the age was. Are you talking about the Moses himself is a baby under yeah. threat? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is, these things are related, and uh, it's always a question of the relationship between Jesus and David, Jesus and Abraham, Jesus and Moses. And I have no doubt that you're right that the threat to Moses as a uh, as an infant child, and the need to protect him and send him out in his little uh, 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 basket, a little basket floating in the water, uh, and then being picked up by uh, the royalty and saved, and so on. All of this is uh, is swimming underneath all of this story. So you're right. That allows us to then come back and say, how is it that God is using the law even when it seems to be threatening, punishing? Yeah. The uh, very ones that are going to carry the story of the gospel, mm -hmm. Moses being one of them, he's not only the man of the law, he's carrying the gospel too. And, uh, and now we've got uh, Jesus who is under threat. And isn't it interesting that like Moses, both when he was an infant and then when he was first called into public duty, God attacked him viciously. Mm -hmm. uh, God himself did. And so we can step back and talk about how terrible Herod is. We can talk about how terrible a nation is that actually kills young children. Yeah. What, what, what a terrible nation uh, to, to, uh, to actually live in if you have uh, people in legal positions killing uh, children. Then, uh, then we can go uh, further and say, um, what is God doing in all of this? How, how is he at the at the least letting this happen, and and p perhaps at the most uh, somehow behind the means of the the, uh, the the killing use of the law, and all of this is frightening uh, when you're reading it. 
Yeah. Especially how close it comes to his own son, Jesus Christ, who mm-hmm. just barely escapes from all of this. Yeah, that I mean, you have a text right after right after Christmas, uh, and it's just it is shocking just to see an actual destruction of uh, young children by a nation, and those are the questions: Why would God let allow this, this? Why would He let it happen? Why would He? And then not only that, but then it was fulfilled. Uh, it was it was fulfilled. Yeah. This actually came to pass. It happened in this way. Now with that, what you want to do is pair the two laws functioning here. One is Joseph protecting Jesus uh, using the law of fleeing. And the other one is this terrible use of the law by Herod that is now used against children and against life itself. Mm-hmm. They're both mm-hmm. operating at the same time, and they come very close to actually... Um, uh, removing the promised son himself, which also seems to be kind of a habit in the, uh, in, in the stories of the gospel. You remember, of course, Isaac, the sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham, mm-hmm. most especially here. And, but now we have to counter these two uses of the law with the three gospels that come up. And the three gospels are, in each case, the fulfillments of particular words in the Old Testament. So we can go down uh, through them and say in the 14th verse, you have uh, a, uh, a fulfillment of a word spoken by the prophet. That means a sermon by a preacher sent by God. That's what this is. And it's a simple word. It says, out of Egypt I called my son. And then we can easily uh, um, note that that comes from Hosea 11. Mm-hmm. Hosea 11 is one of the most important places of Scripture. And isn't it a shame that most of us have never read it? So uh, when we're going to preach on this particular matter, we have to go back to Hosea 11 and see what's going on there uh, so that we can identify not only this little quip, out of Egypt I called my son, which is what the first verse of, uh, of Hosea 11 actually says, But then, if you go back to uh, Hosea 11 and look just a little bit in the full sermon that Hosea preaches, you'll notice a couple of interesting things. So I'm looking at Hosea 11, verse 2. The more they were called, the more they went away, the more God called to his children, the more they went away from him. Mm -hmm. Then, down at verse 6, the sword shall rage against their cities. God is, himself is going to take out the sword and rage against them. This is the threat, which is, a, which is the key notion or key note to you, that you have the law in its fierce form uh, fully operating. And, of course, we've, you, you see it operating with Herod killing the children. There's no mistake uh, that this fierce sword is raging against the cities. Then suddenly, in the midst of this, verse 8, the last part of verse 8, my heart recoils within me. This is God speaking to himself. My heart recoils within me. My compassion, that's a poor word here, my mercy. Now, Luther is the one who picks this out and says the translations here are always way too soft. The translation I've got is, is, is pitiful. Uh, it says, my compassion grows warm and tender, which is a foolish and stupid way of saying this. 
Uh, it sounds like uh, God is uh, going to tuck you in and read you a bedtime story <laughs> or something like this. And I'm now going to be warm and tender to you. But uh, Luther says, here's the proper translation, and he's right about this. He says, my heart recoils within me, God says. My mercy is in heat. Now, that is a strange thing for God to say. Yes. And you have to live out uh, in South Dakota to understand yes. uh, what this means <laughs> for, uh, for, for a cow to be in heat. And God says, that's what it's like with me now. My love is in heat, and it will not be satisfied until I get exactly what I want. Uh, and now we actually have a tremendous uh, fight going on between God using the sword and the law in righteous anger mm -hmm. at his own people, who, he've, who, who his children, who he's asked to come near, and they don't come near, they go further away. And he is mad as a hatter about this. So mad that he's going to pull out the sword and he's going to apply it to them. Then, within God himself, he gives us a peek. He starts fighting himself. And his tremendous anger is now fighting with a love that can only be described in animal terms. I'm now in heat. Uh, and uh, these two are now uh, uh, fighting one another in uh, both a terrible and a wonderful uh, description of what actually is going to happen. Mm -hmm. which is what he's doing with his own son here, Jesus Christ. Now with that, you can go to the second gospel. What's the second gospel? And by the way, um, when, when he says this is fulfilled, remember, there are two different words. If you get a law, how do you fulfill a law? Doing the law? You do it. So he says, do this, and then you That's either do it, that would fulfill it, or you don't do it, mm -hmm. and then you don't fulfill it. However, when you get a gospel, which is in the form of a promise, that says something wild to you, like, uh, I am now in heat for you, my, uh, <laughs> my children, and I will not let this uh, go by until I'm satisfied, then uh, you have a promise. How do you fulfill a promise? That's on the, the person that gives the promise. It's the, on the person who gave it. Yeah. Yeah. And the fulfillment of the promise is entirely his own. It's God's own who is now going to fulfill this. And he's now saying, it's not that X, Y, and Z were done and the deeds were completed so that now I give a reward. But it is, now is the time for you to see what my burning love is like, which will not leave you running away from me. Remember... Uh, the, uh, what, what he said in Hosea was, I called my children, and what did they do? They fled. Mm -hmm. What had just happened? What had just happened with Jesus? And Joseph did it. <laughs> fled again. He fled him. He fled, yeah. uh, they, they, they were fleeing, uh, just like Hosea said, and there sits God saying, well, there he goes. The law is protecting him, of course. Joseph is doing the right thing. However, he's running away from me. And when the time is right, I'm going to call him out of Egypt. And Egypt, of course, is the place where Jews are imprisoned. Mm -hmm. It's not where they find safety. That, this is where they are enslaved. And he now is going to free them once and for all. And for that, he then goes to his second promise, which he's also going to fulfill here. This is now the uh, promise that's given in Jeremiah 31. 
And uh, this is uh, another uh, wild uh, uh, promise. Uh, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. What is this story all about? Uh, it, it's rehearsed in Jeremiah 31, but it's about Rachel. Who's Rachel? Who are her, her children? Why is she lamenting and calling out? And why does she refuse to be comforted? Rachel is one of those stories that is... Um, just goes right to the heart. Remember, uh, she is uh, um, she is uh, they uh, will become the uh, mother of Joseph and Benjamin. But to get there, she had to fight mm -hmm. uh, another wife who was taken in her place, uh, and she the the other wife, uh, her sister, uh, had many children, and she had to sit there barren and watch all of this. And she prayed and prayed and prayed until suddenly God finally gave these children, Joseph and Benjamin. And from Joseph and Benjamin come Manasseh and Ephraim, the wealthiest, most, the, the, uh, most generous places in Israel uh, that were um, a part of the 12 tribes of Israel. But by this time, when Jesus is born, what has happened to them all? Manasseh is long gone. Mm -hmm. It's been taken up in Assyria. And then after that, they have, Israel was taken captive in Babylon. And all of David's kingdom seemed to be a wreck. Uh, and um, the promises made to Rachel that her children would not only be born, but would be the one through whom the seed comes, looks like it's all been destroyed and mm -hmm. wiped out. And she cannot be comforted and consoled. You can't come to Rachel and say, don't worry about those former children who are now dead and gone. I'll give you different ones. Why would she not accept that? Why would she... She knew. I mean, she she was promised the seed through her seed. Uh, she was promised the seed would come through this, uh, yeah. through her line, and yeah. she's not going to let this go, and she will not be comforted until this line, her line, is actually going to be filled, and from it, this savor is going to come. And uh, we are told here, this is now going to be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. Then we have a last, a third promise. And that prom promise you have to look for a little bit more. It's right at the end of our verse, that he should be called a Nazarene. The Bible historians have had their pumpkin heads blow up over this particular <laughs> matter, uh, and they don't know what this possibly could mean. But this is uh, now in reference to uh, Isaiah 11. A shoot will come from Jesse. <laughs> Jesse is named, uh, remember, uh, in the... Uh, in, in Matthew chapter 1 as one of the key parts of the genealogy of Jesus. And it's Jesse who's the father of David who is pulled out and it is Jesse who has promised a branch and from this branch he will come. What is branch in Hebrew? It's Nazarene. Mm. That's what it is. Uh, and a branch, a Nazarene will come in such a way now that this will fulfill this promise. And this promise is that a little sprouty will come out of you. Won't, you won't think as much, but a tiny little branch, a little sprouty will come out. And he is the one who will be preserved by the law first, 
then overcome the law. And with it, he'll give a promise unlike any other that we've seen. That is, he will save the sinner. Rachel says, I don't just want more children that I can name. I want these mm-hmm. who have actually now died to be raised from the dead, and I want them to be the means by which this seed comes. And lo and behold, that's exactly what Jesus does. And, that's, and I guess that's what we mean, too, by um, using God's word, uh, not against him, but pointing back to it uh, yes. and saying, you've promised me this, uh, uh, and yes. make it so. This is actually, you should stay uh, uh, in the strong uh, first part of your observation. This is actually to be used against God. Mm-hmm. That is, for God in his promise, against God in his law and wrath, because now he is saying, I want you to recognize that it's me with the sword here, mm-hmm. and that I am so angry at you that I am not going to relent Mm-hmm. But lo and behold, in my heart is another thing burning. And I want you to see and know this. Mm-hmm. So that now I want you to call, I want you to flee my anger. Yeah. But you won't finally get away from it. And I want you to run to my promise. That's what you're saying. Yeah. I want, I want you to run to my promise and then hold on to that for dear life. Because this is uh, going to be exactly what my son is going to uh, uh, give you. Not another form of the law, but a promise that will not go away. And it will be my burning heart uh, that uh, soothes my heated uh, passion for you, uh, which finally wins. So, as we say, God with his sword goes up against God with his promise in his son. And his promise with his son wins. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is the uh, great cosmic battle that we see going on in the scripture. And here now, we see it come to its conclusion. Mm-hmm. There's that famous painting of, of Luther where uh, he's just pointing directly at Christ. And there's the people in the congregation uh, obviously seeing that. And it, I, I sometimes see that pointing as, yes, he's pointing the people to the congregation. Uh, but in the same sense, he's pointing God towards the Christ, or he's pointing, yeah, he's pointing God towards Christ. Uh, remember uh, nice. what you've done. Um, uh, he's, I like this. So uh, Luther, the, who is preaching now, yeah. is pointing his congregation to Christ. He's also calling God to be faithful to this promise. Mm-hmm. So I, I hear this. He is calling God down to his son. Do not destroy what actually now is the love in your own heart. Mm. Uh, and we see both of these at work, but the one that wins is the love in his heart for his son. And on that note, we've reached the end of this week's episode, my friends. Thank you to Dr. Stephen Paulson for sharing this week's conversation about the cosmic battle happening between God's wrath and God's mercy. And as always, thank you for taking the time to give this episode a listen. We hope it gives you that extra layer of context when you hear it in church, preach the passage to your congregation and friends, or read the text in the coming weeks. A reminder to sign up for Proclamation on the Plains, Luther House of Studies' three-day conference in January. You only have two weeks left, and it's going to be an awesome event, and we want you there. 
Also, be sure to check out Luther House of Studies' resources on their website. There's study guides on the Psalms, the Reformation, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and so much more. That's lutherhouseofstudy.org. That's lutherhouseofstudy.org. Thanks again for joining us this week, and we'll see you next time on Scripture First.